Heavenly Father, as we come together this morning in unity of your gospel and speak about your gospel, I pray that that would ring true this morning, that we are united because of what you have done in us through Jesus. And Lord, that we are united under your name and your name only. I pray that you would speak to us, each one of us, this morning in your name. Amen. We all have that one thing that we're passionate about, don't we? Um, for some of us, we're passionate about craft. For some of us, we're passionate about full driving or camping or caravanning or even coffee or tea, something like that. And, and that one thing, that passionate, that thing that we're passionate about, we speak about, we talk about. We're not ashamed of. For me, I love to run. You might think that's crazy. Some people it might, it might make you sick. But, but I love to run. And, and not only for the physical fitness side of things, but also the emotional kind of fitness, so to speak. You may not understand that, but, but it helps me to, to release stress. And it helps me to, um, improve my fitness, to feel good about myself. Um, and I love to run personal bests. That doesn't happen very often, but when it does, when it does happen, I, I enjoy speaking about it. I enjoy talking about it with others. And when, when I run a personal best, I generally um, talk about it, share it, share it with others, like I said, but the reason for this is because it, it helps me to realise that I am getting fitter and faster and, and, and better with my running, but it also helps others to, to kind of grasp, grasp my joy of running. I want others to, to know how good it can be to, to feel, how good it can feel when they are running and when they are improving in their fitness. And I want others to, to get bitten by the running bug, so to speak. You could say that I'm not ashamed of being a runner. I talk about it. Um, sometimes I don't talk about it because it makes people um, upset. But, but I'm not ashamed of being a runner. In fact, I'm probably proud of being a runner. And in our, in our passage this morning... Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. He doesn't just say that he's not ashamed of the gospel. He doesn't say it in a way that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's good. He shouts it from the rooftop and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, I am proud of the gospel. I, in fact, glory in the gospel. He counts it a high honour to be a preacher of the gospel. Do you grasp the exclamation and the enthusiasm that he says that with this morning in, in verse 16? He counts it a high honour to be able to preach the gospel, to write about it in the letters that he writes to the churches, to proclaim it to those around him and even to those around him when he's locked in prison. 
Because at this very moment when he writes this letter, he is under house arrest and, and in prison, so to speak, for the very sake of the gospel that he speaks about. The very sake of the gospel that he glories in and that he, he finds great passion in about. Isn't that remarkable? Now, the gospel is, is one of those words that we could have had it in our, in our Christianese um, series. It's one of those words as Christians that we use quite a bit. It's the gospel this and the gospel that. We have gospel-driven churches. We have gospel-driven programs. But sometimes it's one of those words that almost loses its meaning. The gospel means exactly good news. Good news. And it wasn't just used by Christians in Paul's day. It was used by politicians and kings. And if a, a message came with good news, with news of great joy, it was called a gospel message. And if I was to ask you this morning, what is the gospel in 50 words of le- or less, if I was to go around the room with the microphone and, and shove it in your face and, and t- say, tell me what is the gospel in 50 words or less, we'd probably get a hundred different sort of answers. But the gospel that Paul is referring to here this morning is the good news of Jesus Christ being the way for salvation, being the way to be brought back into a relationship with God. Now, our context is, is slightly different to, to Paul's, isn't it? Think 2,000 years ago, Paul lived 2,000 odd years ago. Our context nowadays is, is slightly different. And if we were to start with Jesus, Jesus, Jesus in our gospel message, it may just lose some of its effect. We haven't started with the groundwork, so to speak. Because in, in Paul's day, the Jewish people and even the Greek people had some understanding of a god or many gods, had some understanding of creation and where we'd come from as a people, as a human, human beings. And, and especially the Jewish people believed that with all their hearts that there was one God and he had created them and everything in the earth. But in our day, it's slightly different, isn't it? There's a, there's a real undertone of evolution, of unbelief, of lack of trust in the Bible. There's, there's many things that create different, different unbeliefs that taints the world at the moment. So for us to communicate the gospel with someone who, you know, a friend or a neighbor or something like that, we need to start with Explaining that God created the, the earth. So we need to start at, with God as creator. And Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created and God created good. Genesis chapter 1 says this about four times. At the end of, of each of the day, God stands back and says, It was good. And then in verse, um, I didn't write down which verse it was, I should know that. 
in the last last day, at the end of the last, uh, no, the sixth day, God stands back and says, looks all over all of his creation and he says, it is very good. And in our our time at the moment, we've kind of lost the essence of the word good, haven't we? We've got words that that sort of dis, you know they're they're the opposite. They're slang words like mad and sick and wicked, and and these words mean good, but they are totally opposite to good. Do you understand? And so. If God says, if our good God says that something is good, we can understand this in the fact that this very thing is as good as could possibly be, as far removed from bad as good can be. Do you understand? At least it was for a time. Friends, we need to start with God as creator so that when we get on to, to God as being a, a judge or the moral lawgiver, it's not such a surprise as, as God being... Um, due to God being creator, it means that he has the right to be judge and moral lawgiver. Does that make sense? The next little bit is why we need the gospel. Just two chapters into the Bible, man stuffs it up. Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent and they end up making the decision to turn their back on God. And they essentially decide for themselves what is good. They decide for themselves what is good and and turn their back on God. They put themselves in God's position, in fact. If you turn and, and have a look at Genesis chapter 1, and you'll notice the good references that God gives, the, the good, the good, the good, and the very good, and then you have a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. I didn't put that in. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it's only three... Three chapters from the front of the Bible. Verse 6. And it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her. And he ate. Do you see the link between God saying what is good and now in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve deciding what is good for them? Essentially, they've put themselves in God's position and said, no, I don't need you, God. I'll decide what is good for me. And they sin and and turn their backs on God. they kind of remove God from the picture. They remove God from the picture and and say, no, we don't need you, God. And of course, God finds out about this and judges them. He throws them out of the garden. He says, no, you're out of my sight. You're out of my presence. 
But he doesn't do this just without making a promise to make a way for, for people to come back into his presence again one day. Can you see the grace of God shining through in that little bit? And just like Adam and Eve, each one of us have made the decision to be able to, to, to basically take God out of the picture. We've made the decision from time to time to, to decide what is good for ourselves. And each one of us have brought on ourselves the same kind of judgment and distance between us and God. We've not lived up for, not lived up to the, to the idea and the morals that God desires of us. And as I whiz through the, the, um, Old Testament, after the Garden of Eden, God initiates a covenant with a man called Abraham, who then turns into a nation called Israel. And he initiates again another covenant with, with Israel to be a nation and for them to, for him to be their God. God gives them kings and prophets and a judicial system and the Ten Commandments and all the laws that come along that, along with that. And these Ten Commandments outline what God desires of his people. He desires a life devoted to him and also a life devoted to others as well. And along with this judicial system, there is a sacrificial system. This sacrificial system allows mankind or or the Israelites to sacrifice animals to kind of hold back God's wrath or judgment. It's it's for their forgiveness of sins, but it doesn't completely take away their sins. And this sacrificial system is, is kind of like a precursor to the, the perfect sacrifice that comes along the line. As important as the sacrificial system is, the prophets were very pivotal to the life of Israel as well. The prophets are the ones that, that come, come along time and time again and say, come back to God. Come back to God, come back to God, come back to God. There we go. This, this is the essence of the Ten Commandments. This is the essence of, of what God desires of us. He doesn't just desire just an empty, obligatory and compulsory sort of sacrificial system, but he desires our hearts. He desires for us to be completely devoted to him. And the prophets relay the the future promise of God's righteousness revealed as well. And of course, this righteousness revealed is in Jesus. God as redeemer. Jesus lives the full the, the perfect life. He's fully God and fully man. And our puny little brains can't understand that sometimes. But he, he became the perfect sacrifice for the people's sins. Like I said earlier, these same sins had been just covered over, so to speak, 
swept under the carpet. And, but with Jesus' sacrifice, it becomes ultimate and final. It becomes complete. The people are cleansed of their sins. Turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 10, if you will. And I'm going to read from verse 3. The subheading of this chapter is Christ's sacrifice once for all. From verse 3. But in these sacrifices, that is the the sacrifices of animals, uh, there is reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And verse 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his seat, for his feet. You see, it's in Jesus that we see God's righteousness fully revealed. It's in Jesus that we see God initiating a way for the people to come back to to himself. God as Redeemer reaches down and makes a way for God's people to come back to him, takes away their sins, removes the barrier that is between him and them and wins the victory over sin and death. Is that something to be gloried in? And this is what Paul says that he is not ashamed of. This is what Paul says that he glories in. This is what Paul says that he is going to shout from the rooftops, write about letters, do everything in his life that he can do to to communicate this gospel. He says that it is the power of God to salvation, in verse 16. It is power to save a people who are dead in their sins, who are lost, who have no hope. And yet, it is power to save even the worst of sinners like himself. Paul mentions that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Verse 17. 
In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in, in a twofold way in the gospel. I've been battling with this little portion of my sermon this week because it's just blown my mind. In one sense of the word, God's righteousness revealed. We have God's righteousness in the fact that he cannot allow sinful human beings in his presence. God cannot allow evil or, or sinful people to be enjoying his righteousness. And yet, on the other hand, uh, let's stay over here for a second, it reveals his righteous judgments. The, the gospel, the fact that God's righteousness cannot um, have sinful human beings in his presence, it reveals his righteous judgments. But on the other hand, it reveals God's righteousness or reveals God's goodness by his instigation of, of making a way for those very people to be able to enjoy his presence. Now these two things might seem like they're, they're just so far on the ends of the scales from each other and that's the bit that's been blowing my mind this week is that his goodness is displayed in the gospel by his righteous judgments and yet his goodness is displayed in the gospel by his instigation of clearing those judgments, of clearing the sins that, that deserve his judgments. Does that make sense? God cancelled our debt in the gospel. God redeemed us in the gospel. Isn't God good? The gospel is powerful. Paul knows firsthand, personally, that the gospel is powerful. Prior to being the apostle Paul, Paul was a guy who was, was basically persecuting and murdering and chasing down Christians from house to house. Paul knows that he has been brought at a price, brought from, from that, that guy who was the, the worst of sinners, and he knows firsthand that he's been brought from spiritually dead to spiritually alive in Christ Jesus. Prior to his conversion, prior to his Damascus Road experience, Paul explains himself as one of the worst sinners. He says this in, yeah, it's up there. He says this in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So Paul has first-hand personal experience of the power of the gospel, the saving power of the gospel. And I'm sure he's also seen this 
in the outworking of, of the people that he writes to, in the outworking of the, the lives of the people in the churches that he started. He knows firsthand that, that the gospel has power to save the worst of sinners and turn them into a person who God can use. Like I said, the gospel is power to save. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God, not just personally, but to salvation. And he has seen this firsthand in his own life. I want to ask you this morning, have you seen that in your own life? Have you seen the power of the gospel to save in your own life? Some of us have have different testimonies. In fact, we all have a different testimony. Some of us have come from, from such a, a terrible place and been saved by the gospel similar to Paul's testimony. And we've been brought from, from the worst of sinners to the, to the salvation that comes in the gospel. And yet some of us, it's been a gradual process of we haven't been the worst of sinners or haven't even considered ourselves that bad and yet it's a gradual process. Yet when God looks at each one of us, in the case of Paul or the case of Dale or the case of anyone of us, he doesn't see gradual differing degrees of sinners. It's a blanket response. You're either a sinner or you're saved. And I want to ask you, have you seen the power of God to salvation in your own life this morning. Not just this morning, but previously as well. The gospel exhibits God's power to save. Right throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's exhibitions of God's power to save. One of the best ones is, is the exodus from Egypt. People being saved through plagues and through crossing of the Red Sea and then God's power to save them at the end from, from even um, armies of Egyptians. And then there's the example of the, the remnant from people coming back from exile out of Babylon. There's God's power to be, sa- uh, to be shown in his power to deliver. And yet God's power to save is so much more vividly displayed in the gospel than it has ever been before. It's so much more of a, a vivid, vivid kind of display of God's saving power than any of those other examples that I gave you. And the gospel calls for a response. Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to save, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, there must be a response to the good news of Jesus Christ 
for, for in order to receive the benefits of God's righteousness, in order to, to receive God's salvation. And this power to save, this faith in God's righteousness is open to all who believe. You don't have to come to God with your good behaviour or your um, exceptional talents. And some of us have got exceptional talents, but none of that amounts to anything in God's eyes. Only the, the belief in his son. Only the belief that is accompanied, uh, accompanied by faith. Because the next little bit is that belief is accompanied by faith. The righteous shall live by faith, Paul says. You see, those who are in a, a right standing with God understand the fullness of the power to save that comes with the gospel and they continue to live in that faith. They place their faith in God alone rather than in themselves. The gospel is not just something that, that you hear once and say, oh, yep, yeah, that was fun. Thank you for that. You've got to continue to, to live in the gospel. You've got to continue to respond in faith and live in righteousness. This faith is not just simply a once-off um, once off response, but it's a lifelong commitment to follow God. It's a lifelong commitment to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation that comes from it. Have a look again at verse 17 in Romans chapter 1. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So there needs to be a continual response of faith to the gospel, a continual day-to-day response to faith, of faith. Now, if I was to try and explain to you what is the gospel in 50 words of less, I'd probably start with something like, God as creator. And, and that God created everything in the world and us and he created it good. I would continue on with the, the fall of mankind because that's something, in order to know that you have been saved, you have to know what you've been saved from. We are all sinners in need of God's grace because we take God out of the picture. We decide for ourselves what is good. And of course, along with that comes God as judge. But here's the good news. God as redeemer. Jesus redeems people back to himself. Back into a right relationship with God through his perfect sacrifice. And then God's people live by faith. That is the gospel, folks. That was probably about 80 words, but it's pretty close to 50. 
until we're fully aware of, of what the gospel is, and until we're reminded day by day of how it is to our advantage, we will not glory in the gospel in the same way that Paul does. Until the gospel is central to our lives, until it burns on our hearts, we will not take hold of the, the opportunities that we have to share our faith. We will be a little timid about sharing our faith. And we'll not understand what it means to be a gospel-centred community here in this church and roundabout in the, in the community as well. That is loving God first, loving one another and loving others as well. I believe that we all need to glory in the gospel this morning. I believe that we all need to not be ashamed of the gospel because in it we have been made righteous through the revealing of God's righteousness. We need not be ashamed of the gospel because in it God's goodness is revealed. In it God's amazing power is displayed. And in it, that is the gospel, lives are saved and transformed. So let's, let's join with Paul in glorying in the gospel. Let's join with Paul in remembering that the gospel is something to be excited about. Let's join with Paul and, and write about it in letters, shout it from the rooftops, um, okay, we'll talk with our neighbours, we'll just do baby steps. We won't shout it from the rooftops just yet. But the gospel is something to be excited about. This is me excited, by the way. <laughs> and until we, we fully understand what it means to live lives in the gospel, we won't be excited about the gospel. Let's live lives that are, that are full of faith, that are transformed by the faith of God, transformed by the power of the gospel. And let's get excited when we see others come to Christ as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to ask for your forgiveness for the times when we don't glory in the gospel, for the times when we are not excited about the gospel, where, where it doesn't seem very real to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the significance of the gospel, the power that is displayed, your power that is displayed and how it is to, to our advantage. Lord, help us to get excited about the gospel. Help us to speak about it to our friends and our neighbours and our work colleagues. Help us to, to recognise its power in our own daily lives. Help us to, to see the good news of Jesus Christ as truly good. 
And Lord, as we come around the communion table now, I pray that you would just reveal afresh to us how the gospel is great news, is excellent news, is wonderful news of how you have turned those who were once sinners into children of God. Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen. We have...